Healthcare leadership is hard work, but what if you could learn from the most brilliant and influential minds in healthcare and beyond? What would you ask them? Would you ask about politics, policy, or maybe leadership? On The Gary Bisbee Show, I'll do just that. You'll hear from healthcare's most successful leaders and those experts who they listen to as together, we'll explore how the health economy is transforming. Have you wondered what is the role of the chief health officer at Anthem, one of the largest health insurers in the country? We'll find out today during our discussion with Dr. Shantanu Agarwal. Shantanu's interests lie in medicine, policy, and politics. He was a senior official at CMS, where he was active in building data sharing arrangements through public-private partnerships, which have become increasingly important during COVID. He also led us through the introduction at CMS of predictive modeling in claims payment. Shantanu left CMS to become the CEO of NQF. We used his experience at NQF as an opportunity to dig into the provider burden of collecting and reporting multiple quality measures. He provided a nuanced framework for better understanding the challenges and resolution. Shantanu discussed his responsibilities as Anthem's chief health officer, starting with ensuring that Anthem operates under a single community health strategy and leading the clinical quality team, the medical policy team, and the Anthem Foundation. We explored Dr. Agarwal's experiences as a leader and his conclusion that the two top characteristics of a great leader are continuous communication and willingness to listen. Well, good morning, Shantanu, and welcome. Thanks, Gary. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Well, great to be with you, and thanks so much. Love having you at the microphone. We like to dig into our guests a little bit early in their careers just to figure out what motivations are and decisions that they make later on. So what was life like growing up for you, Shantanu? I grew up in a small town in Northwest Ohio, most of my childhood in Finley, Ohio. We actually emigrated from India when I was very young, first to the Detroit area. And then my dad got a residency in anesthesiology in Toledo, Ohio, which took us to Ohio and then just moved near to Toledo when he, when he started his clinical practice. Growing up, it really was a small town. I had friends that lived on farms. My dad worked most of his career at the town community hospital. And because of our last name and everything, people knew us by name and they knew my dad. And anywhere I went in town, they could sort of guess who, who my parents were. Normally, we ask our uh, physician guests when they became interested in medicine. You were probably interested from a relatively early age, but did you always think you wanted to practice medicine, Shantanu? I didn't. So I was exposed really early, even when my dad was in residency because he was on call a lot. This was obviously way before work hour reforms and things like that. Because he was on call so much, I remember going into the hospital and seeing him there. And once in a while on call, he'd actually let me stay with him. So I'd be in the call room and I'd be sleeping and he'd kind of go in and out which probably wasn't great for either one of us in terms of sleep, but that's how I, I could spend time with him. So I, I've 
sort of lifelong exposure to medicine and healthcare, but I actually started college thinking I'd be a PhD chemist and not really necessarily go into medicine myself until, you know, I had some other experiences sort of personally and academically and, and then decided to do that. So you're a chemistry major at Brown, and then you went off to Cambridge for your MPhil in basically public affairs or public policy, it looked like. Were you interested in politics at an early age? I really credit Brown for this a lot. I got exposed to just different disciplines and areas in college. I went to a small high school in Ohio. So we, we had the core subjects, but not a lot beyond that. So in you know college was really in a time when I started getting exposed. I was pursuing my chemistry degree, so a lot of science courses and math courses, but then I started taking philosophy and political science and public policy. And ultimately, as I was thinking more about healthcare and medicine, those courses started influencing my, my thinking a lot more. And I, I just became much more interested in the broader social sets of decisions around healthcare and how we think about healthcare financing and who gets health and healthcare. And that's when I realized, okay, I, I actually wanted to get a deeper understanding of that. And that's what sort of took me to Cambridge for the master's degree. And frankly, in part, I went to Cambridge because the UK sort of sits in this middle ground between the US approach and the European approach on a lot of different areas. And what I really liked about their take on healthcare was how tied in it was to the broader social safety net it stood in much more continuity than how we often think about it in the US. And then obviously with the NHS, they, they have a, a system that is, again, just much more publicly driven and, and more integrated than we have here. So it was very interesting to reflect on our healthcare system and indeed just social and public policy generally sitting in a UK context. Well, and we'll wrap back around to that when we talk about your new posting at Anthem, I suspect as well. But I was thinking as you were talking about growing up in uh, Finley, Ohio, and then spending four years at Weill Cornell in Manhattan, that must have been an interesting juxtaposition. Oh, yeah. I mean, could not be more just opposite of each other. I, I really, frankly, enjoyed both. I mean, it's, it's funny. I look back at my childhood and there was a sort of a simplicity to it in some ways, being in a small town in Ohio. I didn't think a lot about some of the things, you know, if I'd grown up in, I guess, New York City or some big city, even my kids growing up in DC, they think about certain areas, both, I think there's pros and cons, but they think about certain things that I was just really never exposed to. And then New York, and, and frankly, what I, of course, I, I actually love New York. And aside from the pandemic, look forward to going back there as a, as a tourist and a visitor. But it, what is incredible to me is the pace, certainly everybody talks about, it's the diversity, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we, we were an immigrant family in a much more homogeneous town, and that too affected my upbringing and sort of affected the way I, I view the world. And then to be for med school in the middle of this incredibly diverse city and where I could go and, and speak in Hindi at a restaurant or at a grocery store was just such a novel thing for me, I have to tell you. It's interesting, and it's a great town from that standpoint, for sure. And we all hope it snaps back from the pandemic. I'm sure it will. But let's fast forward, spend some time at Accenture, but let's go to your CMS experience, Shantanu, and 
started out as CMO, ended up as deputy administrator of CMS. What was involved in that position? What were your main responsibilities there? I first was exposed to CMS as a consultant, and and my organization was brought in shortly after the passage of the Affordable Care Act to do some strategic consulting work. And that was my first real exposure to the government, the CMS in in particular. And, And I have to tell you, I was just really impressed. There was a sort of moment when healthcare transformation, and there was just a lot of energy around it that just captivated me. And a lot of the people that I was interacting with at CMS were just incredibly, very socially minded people, very intelligent, driven individuals. And so when the opportunity came up to join the Center for Program Integrity as its chief medical officer, I really almost jumped at it. And what was really amazing about that work and overall the six years I spent at CMS is there were a lot of new authorities and statutory requirements that we were responding to. So it really felt like even within a very large organization with a huge mandate, that we were a startup. I was one of the earlier employees of the Center for Program Integrity. And so we were having to do a lot of build over the next several years to get into whole new areas, implement new authorities. We implemented things like predictive analytics for the first time for CMS. And so it it felt very new and there was a lot of energy around that. And there's a lot of energy around the mission. So it was just really an exciting time to be there, I thought. When you move to a position like deputy administrator of CMS, how do you formulate your priorities? I mean, it seems like it's so huge, but how do you kind of zero in on what you think you can influence? In some respects, it's like starting at any other job. You start by listening to your peers, to Others, in this case, the administrator, the secretary, the White House. I mean, there's there's plenty of stakeholders to listen to in the government. And so you need to be open to the input. What's the track record been? Where can you make improvements and changes? With the government, you also have, well, often, I guess, with healthcare in general, you, you do have uh, statutory and, and uh, regulatory requirements that you need to respond to. And then there's the Hill. And the Hill, it becomes an extremely important stakeholder to make sure they're bought into your approach, what you'll be working on. And so I think getting early in front of that as a stakeholder group is really important as well. And then the second broad category is where do you want to make your impact? In all of these really big jobs, big positions, there's always this question of what am I going to bring to this role? Why is it me in this job? And how is that going to be unique compared to anyone else that could be in this role? And so really thinking about my own priorities. And frankly, over the years and over my career, I've gotten much more comfortable asking what are my priorities? How will I drive the impact that I want to see both in this position and in the world generally? That becomes another lens to view a a job through. And I I feel really fortunate that I've been able to apply that lens both at CMS and, and outside and really try to address areas that I thought were just incredibly important. I mentioned predictive modeling. I've always been really data focused and want to make sure we're always using, no matter what organization I'm in, the best possible data to meet our mission and and make sure we're responding to it. Predictive analytics was just a huge kind of new tool that we were implementing at the time. And given the claims volume that CMS gets at that time, something like four and a half million claims per day. Without an advanced algorithm-driven approach, it really just wasn't possible to see patterns 
in the claims and in the utilization. So that was huge. We got to do some, I thought, really critical data transparency work around the Sunshine Act, around creating public-private partnerships to encourage more data sharing between payers and providers. And then I was running Program Integrity, which oftentimes had some really, I would say, hard tools that we could utilize in order to meet our mission. And early on, of course, it was really important to implement those tools and get them in use because CMS just didn't have them. But as we got more sophisticated and involved in our approach, some of the questions became, well, how do we utilize a softer set of tools to actually still drive the goals? And so we started doing a whole series of work around behavioral approaches to altering kind of utilization and, and billing outcomes. And that's felt really interesting to me. I mean, it's a great area to work and study and again, apply data and apply different approaches. But it also showed that even in a government context, you could bring this kind of innovation and, and apply it at scale. And so that was, I, I thought, just really fascinating and something that I continue to try to work on these days. As you know, we like to focus on lessons for leaders on this show. Thinking back to the CMS experience, what lessons from a leadership standpoint did you take away, Shantanu, that you could apply to NQF and now Anthem? Yeah, so many, and some by doing things right and some by mistakes along the way. I think that getting stakeholder input is really critical. Communication is always critical. I've been told that a thousand times in the course of my career, and I don't think you can hear it enough. Communicating over communicating to your team, communicating up to your own leadership. There's a lot of stakeholders, sure, in the government, but there's a lot of stakeholders throughout, right? I mean, even in a private enterprise, you need to be able to communicate to external stakeholders, get their buy-in, communicate a vision. So I think communication just really becomes critical in, in almost any job. I think there are aspects, sometimes when I speak to medical students or physicians that are relatively earlier in their career, I, I always make it important. I mean, it's sort of, I've got, a, I've got an almost kind of career guide algorithm that I provide to them about how to think about a non-clinical career with their clinical training and career and background. And so that, that's probably a whole conversation onto itself. But I do think for physicians, we, we have to think about how much being a physician and working clinically is really important to us and how that should kind of figure into a broader career. I also think it's important to get management experience as a physician, especially. Oftentimes we can get placed into roles that don't have management requirements. And for some, that's great. But I think oftentimes moving ahead in organizations, moving ahead in businesses really requires knowing how to lead teams, being a dynamic leader, getting people to organize and, and coalesce around a vision and a strategy. And those are often skills that you can really only learn by doing and certainly by observing others. But I think that's really critical, again, for physician leadership to be thinking about how leadership truly figures into their career as well as the expertise they have as clinicians. Yeah, that's a key issue. I'd love to follow up with you on that. That is a whole nother conversation. Well, on to NQF, when that opportunity arose, what was your decision process, Shantanu, to move to that role? I was just amazed by even being given the opportunity to lead that organization. It's one that I knew really well as an outsider. I'd followed the history of I remembered, and I sh I've shared this actually with Ken Kaiser, the founding CEO of NQF, that I, I actually remember seeing an article when I was in medical school that he'd written about the, about the founding of NQF and the goals and the aspirations for that organization. 
in many ways, it was sort of a return to work that I'd done before. Most of my consulting career had really been focused on quality improvement for health systems. And I was actually using NQF measures in, in that work. And so it was an opportunity to contribute again to quality. At CMS, I'd spent a lot of time because it was program integrity on the cost side of healthcare and really trying to think through how we address costs, what kind of interventions a payer like CMS can put into place. NQF, uh, obviously, so focused on quality. It really became an opportunity to bring these two aspects together in what I was hoping a really meaningful way. And so that really figured into my decision as well. And one, one thing I certainly experienced in my time at NQF is there's just an incredible amount of goodwill in the ecosystem toward that organization. Lots of people, leaders, experts that step forward to support the work, to volunteer for the organization. It just became a great place to meet these thought leaders, to get to work alongside them. So it was just a valuable experience for me. And, and again, I felt really just honored that I was given the chance. Looking forward throughout the rest of this decade, or maybe shorten it to the next three to five years, where do you see quality going in the country? Are we going to spend more resources on that? Will it become more a part of our delivery and financing of healthcare. What's your thinking about that, Shantanu? I think there there should be nothing more primary to healthcare than assessing our quality, making sure that the quality is ever improving. I will say in the last few years, there's been a, a good and rightful focus on the burden of measurement. But I want to be really thoughtful that as an ecosystem, we don't let that overwhelm the mission and focus on quality itself. I think our measures really are just beginning, right? Even a, a couple of decades into the modern enterprise, we've learned a lot about measurement, what works, what doesn't. We've gotten very sophisticated in the analytics behind measurement, but I think we have to continue to evolve it, right? So our measures have to get better. They have to get more real time. I think we learned in 2020 that frankly, the enterprise was not situated for success when the system needed it the most. And I think that says a lot about how we have to be less focused on the mechanics of collecting data to support measurement. And we can only do that by being more automated, taking advantage of, of new technologies, being much more digital. I think we've got to be far more inclusive of the patient voice in measurement. And again, I think going back to everything we learned throughout this pandemic, we just have to put disparities and equity and various populations that have been chronically underprivileged in our system and have experienced disparate outcomes as a result, we've got to put them front and center in measurement. I do think if we have to ask ourselves, if we're not measuring their outcomes and actually prioritizing their outcomes, then the system is not meeting its goals. So that those are all places that I think absolutely measurement needs to go. We cannot stop focusing on measurement. And, and that's something that I, I would I've certainly said at NQF and would continue to say, I don't want the need to be efficient to overwhelm the need to put measurement and quality outcomes at the center of our, of our system. There's a discussion point around the number of measures and employers are somewhat probably confused, the providers perhaps as well. What's your thought about that? Is it possible to somehow consolidate the good work that's been done here into a more manageable set of measures? I do think we can consolidate and align around a manageable set of measures and, and more work needs to be done there. 
at places like NQF and other venues. I will say, I, I think the discussion or the focus on the sheer number of measures is in and of itself symptomatic of other problems in healthcare, right? We, if we as an industry operated like other industries where data flowed much more seamlessly, where things were more automated, where we had data interoperability uh, instead of the barriers that we have today, the number of measures would become, I would argue, largely irrelevant. Measures could be far more algorithmically driven. They could be far more self-calculating. I mean, now working at a private payer, I see from another lens how much work goes into just collecting data and oftentimes in paper or essentially paper-like formats and then needing to abstract that data, how much effort goes into that. And I know the same level of effort is being put into on the provider clinician side. That is all wasted effort. I mean, we really should be utilizing that in, in actually improving on quality. So what I'd say is before we start cutting down the number of measures and getting to a place where we're not, no longer assessing what we need to assess, before that happens, I think we've got to solve for these other issues. Quality suffers. The issues that we face in quality are really symptoms of, of broader dynamics that we have to address first. Because if we ask, and I often got into these conversations at NQF, yes, let's decrease the number of measures. On the one hand, that would be sort of part of the discussion. On the other hand, people would say, but we need more measures in maternal care because look at the yawning gap that's happening in maternal care. We need more measures around social drivers of health. We need more measures on outpatient safety or diagnostic safety. I mean, there's a multitude of areas that are still under measure today, despite the concern that our measurement enterprise might be growing too far. I think we just have to acknowledge we, there are still these really critical gaps and not lose the focus on those gaps just because we want to get down to a certain magical number of measures. Right. Well, you make the good point. What did we spend $35 billion in this country on the High Tech Act to digitize medicine? That was just last decade. So this decade, if we can focus more on the practical uses of digitized medicine, then this is one of the areas that could benefit. Yeah. I mean, like, like most clinicians, I've yet to meet an EMR system that I love. Uh, I have, right? I've yet to meet one that helps me in, in that moment of practice, right? I mean, we have talked for a while about clinical decision support and, and concepts like that, but I've yet to meet that system that, that can point out something that is really vital towards patient care and help guide me, really be that partner to me. I definitely hope that happens in the next decade. It's, it's critical. You talked about predictive analytics during your time at CMS. How useful either is that or could that be in the quality measures, do you think, an application of them? Oh, sure. Yeah. So it, it was certainly very useful in the CMS context. Again, it, it brought out patterns in an otherwise kind of morass of data and claims. It, it became part of our standard workflow day to day to utilize these, this kind of analytical engine and really utilize the, the products, the outputs. I, I think if we can get to a place where the data going into EHRs is much higher quality. And, and obviously, we all acknowledge that, that data uh, often being input very manually by, by physicians and others is not high quality. There are mistakes. There's, there's issues of copy and paste, et cetera. If that could be really high quality data, if the claims that get generated could be really uh, high fidelity, high quality, those absolutely should be inputs for quality measurement. 
And what I would love to see is not only a set of those measures, however many there are and should be, that are publicly reported, that are made transparent, that consumers, employers, and others can rely on, that providers can use for quality improvement. I mean, all of that should be happening. But underneath that should be a, frankly, even much larger layer of measures that are used for internal purposes at every delivery system to drive quality and value improvement. And that really does rely on, I think, data being abstracted from EHR, EHRs, from clinical registries, other data sources, even from patient level inputs, right, for, for PROs. All of that's got to become, as long as it's accurate, high quality data, used in real time to inform quality measures and inform improvement work. I mean, that would be sort of what I would love to see happen in the next several years. For sure. Well, thanks for that terrific review of the landscape, the quality landscape. On to Anthem. What was the decision process you went through to leave what looked like an ideal position at NQF, given your background and interest, to go to become the chief health officer at Anthem? The opportunity here, I thought, was just sort of too big and too great to pass up. What I was really amazed by is we've got a leader who's a longtime health insurance executive who really understands the business, but is also extremely focused on driving improvement in community health, in population health approaches, in addressing social drivers of health and of care. That level of strategic focus was not something that I just sort of saw throughout the ecosystem. It really felt very specific to Anthem at this time. It's a strategic focus for, for our CEO, for our board, and was really imbued in this chief health officer role that she created. So the opportunity to come into this environment with that kind of push and impetus behind this role and be able to utilize the scale and scope of a place like Anthem, which just, I think, has been in the community, like so many Blues plans for quite a long time, has had that focus, but then to be able to say, look, this is going to be important to every single thing that we do, every, every line of business. We're going to put resources and real thinking and strategy behind it. That was just an incredible opportunity. You've indirectly answered the question without my asking it. Let me ask it specifically. So what are your responsibilities as Chief Health Officer, Shantanu? Yeah, so I think the, the largest piece of this is really coming into the organization, making sure that we are operating under a single community health strategy. And I should say that's tied very, very closely to our mission statement around improving the health of humanity, right? So when I take a step back and I say the words, improving the health of humanity, which literally probably comes out of my mouth at least daily in conversations and meetings. I mean, that's a huge mandate and we take it seriously. Gail, our CEO, takes it seriously. I, I think we really do have this focus around not just improving the health of our members, improving the health of our associates, our, our employees and team members, but really thinking about our role in the ecosystem at large and making sure that we are bringing to bear our expertise, our resources, to help communities that we are not sort of in that in the same way directly tied to, right? We want to do that because we are a member of these communities as an employer or just our families living out in these communities. So that's a huge mandate. On the one hand, I feel amazed that there is this mandate that I get to operate under and really think about and create a strategy around that we can drive. And of course, it's also really daunting uh, to think about improving the health of humanity. But I think it's incredible. So, so in addition to leading our community health work, 
I lead our clinical quality team, our, our medical policy team, and the Anthem Foundation, which of course becomes a really important arm and leverage point for the community health strategy. Digging into social determinants of health, how much focus will that be in terms of your responsibilities and your priorities, Shantanu? Yeah, a tremendous focus. So I view community health through a couple of lenses. First, I think it's really important in our community health work to be addressing both social drivers of health as well as the clinical drivers of health that more traditional for an organization like ours to do. And, and that lens means working with our, our providers, our clinicians, making sure that we're implementing and incentivizing the right care models that will be safe, that will lead to appropriate healthcare decisions and utilization and, and really optimize care. And then at the same time, working with community level resources, and that might be community-based organizations, other players, there's new startups and emerging actors in this in this area in particular that I think we can work with to make sure that we are accounting for the context of our members and our associates' lives, right? That we are inclusive of that thinking and trying to integrate as best as possible those social risk interventions with our clinical risk interventions. A second lens that I really think about for our community health work goes towards that larger community role. So even with individuals or populations that we don't directly interact with because they're our member or because they're our, our employee, we can still play a role as a major employer in the United States, right? We have 80,000 employees at Anthem, all of them with families that live, work, go to school out in the communities that have experienced this pandemic in their communities. All of those people, I think, can be ambassadors for our community health strategy if we give them the right resources, if we help educate them and train them in, in how to think about community health. And then, of course, we have all of our philanthropic work as well. And so making sure we're really specific, we are driven by a set of priorities, that we are assessing our outcomes across all of our different levels of community health engagement. I think that becomes really important. And, and again, it gives us the ability to affect certain priority areas really deeply not just for our sort of directly connected individuals and lives, but to have that kind of wider societal impact that is really critical to us as well. Improving the health of humanity is obviously a broad goal, and it does suggest that you can't do it yourself. What's your thinking about working with, let's just say, health systems, the provider systems on something like social determinants of health? Obviously, there's been friction in the past between the providers and the health insurers. There's also been plenty of examples of them working together. How do you see that playing out over the next several years, Shantanu? Yeah, great question. So look, to your point, we can improve the health of humanity on our own, even with our scale and footprint. It really does come down to collaborations and partnerships. I think there's a wide variety. I mean, Providers, health systems, clinicians will always be really important, critical stakeholders for us to be working with. I, I think we can do that by, again, al aligning on the right payment model. So making sure that we're incentivizing um, the right uses of both healthcare and social care. We can do more to provide resources and capabilities to our um, clinician partners whether that bring, means bringing in a social care model, helping to lay out social risk screening tools, creating referral patterns so that patients, members can get access to 
community level resources to say to address food insecurity or, or other social risk areas. That relationship with clinicians will always be important. The way I think about it is we have over thousands of years invested in a very high touch clinical model, right? And we literally have millions of our members interacting with clinicians every single day. And there's a lot of richness in that interaction. There's an opportunity to learn so much about what's going on in a person's life and to get those things addressed. I think we need to bring the same richness to social risk intervention. How do we bring a high touch model that Anthem can really help to promote and promulgate so that we are seeing our members, our associates in their lives, right? Seeing them in their home environment, really understanding what social risk they face, and then as best as possible, working to meet those risks. That will mean, I think, a different operating model, right? We've, right now, we, we as an ecosystem, as an industry, don't do the kind of holistic social risk assessment that clinicians do to assess health risk on our behalf. We've got to change that. We've got to collect social risk data. We've got to um, share it. We've got to act on it. And then again, make sure that we're partnering with CBOs and other organizations to intervene on the social risk that we're identifying. So the explosion of telehealth over the last year has obviously changed life for providers and I'm sure for our health insurers. I've spoken to more than one physician who loves the whole televisit idea because they get to see what's going on behind discussing with that patient on video. And it's, it's almost like a, a home visit in the old days. How do you think about that? I became a tele-provider in, in, during the pandemic. I'm ER trained. So I, I ended up working on a telehealth platform just to get some experience with it. And yes, I mean, it, it is incredible. And, and on more than one occasion, being able to see the person in their home context gave me a level of understanding that I wouldn't have had if they came into my ER and we, we had them put on the funny gown and all that stuff. Like it sort of wipes away that traditional clinical environment, wipes away the context that I think was not ideal. I am really optimistic about that. I'm really optimistic that digital health platforms, telehealth will be a permanent feature of our system. I think it can be great for longitudinal care, when, especially when there's an established relationship. You can more easily check in on the patient. You can do some quick diagnostics or a quick evaluation because you've already got that sort of foundation of a relationship. I do think that what I got to observe pretty directly is that there still needs to be some improvement. So I think we need some improvement to the technology. The fact is a lot of people are using telehealth on small cell phones with poor bandwidth and you can get a very grainy picture. We do need to solve some technology problems. We do need to think about some sort of regulatory approaches to making sure we have a common understanding of what needs to happen in a tele-encounter or in a digital encounter, what sort of the standard of care look like. How do we protect things like privacy? So yes, being able to see a person in their home is really helpful, but I don't know who else is in the home, maybe perhaps listening to that encounter. And if we're going to solve for issues like domestic violence or other obviously sensitive topics, substance use disorder, behavioral and mental health issues, we need to know what's happening from a privacy standpoint, right? We've got to be able to tackle privacy as well so that we are doing the right thing for the patient just as we would in a more traditional clinical setting. So I'm really optimistic on it. I do think we need some sort of standards and protocols to make sure that telehealth fits into our broader framework of how healthcare should be conducted. 
begs the question a bit, thinking your background in NQF, so what are the quality measures or how do you even assess quality in that televisit kind of environment? We did do some work on that at NQF, so I'll quickly plug NQF and would recommend there's some great reports that people can get access to. I think from a quality standpoint, there's sort of at least two opportunities. One is quality measures can generally be more inclusive of the tele-encounter, right? So we have now seen, because of the experience of 2020, telehealth use skyrocketed. I believe it's here to stay, even with the numbers kind of coming down a bit and leveling out. I think there'll be sort of a, a permanence to that. And I think when we when we have other measures, whether they're measures of primary care, care coordination, et cetera, I think telehealth can be much more a part of that, right? So when I think back to NQF, a lot of our care coordination measures still mention fax machines. We have to stop doing that. We are the only industry that has codified the use of fax machines and continues to, to codify it. I'd love to see telehealth replace that as an example of how to coordinate care whether it's telehealth or digital apps or whatever, as another exemplar of care coordination, that's someplace that we could sort of make a change in the near term. And then the second broad area of change for measures is telehealth specific measures. And I think we need to see more of those being created so that we are assessing quality in the tele-encounter in a way that's specific to that. It makes sense for the telehealth visit and patients can understand the kind of quality of care that we're getting. So there is actually a whole report on that. And and I think one important caveat that really emerged from that work is on the one hand, yes, we do want telehealth specific measures or digital specific measures. On the other hand, we don't want to hold those encounters to a different standard, right? It should feel very much like you are still going to an office, still going to a, a clinic, a care setting in terms of your expectations as a patient, maybe even a little bit higher expectation, right? Like the accessibility should be higher the privacy, the quality of the encounter should at least be the same, if not better. So I, I think, we, yes, we want to measure it in a specific way, but not hold it to a different or lower standard than uh, the rest of healthcare. I agree with that. That's well said. I'm going to ask a question. I don't even know if it's possible to answer it, honestly. But as you look at Anthem or other insurers, how has COVID changed the way they may be thinking about their processes or different strategies or objectives going forward? I think it changed the way payers insurance companies work dramatically. And, and I think a lot of those changes will be permanent. So I've learned and just recognizing I've been here for a short time, but what Anthem did in the course of 2020 to respond to the pandemic, I think was nothing short of heroic. So there was sort of an immediate call to action to change processes that perhaps could be characterized as bureaucratic, right? To be much more focused, to be faster, to speed up support of the community of providers, remove some of the barriers that had existed in the payer world, even at Anthem prior to the pandemic. So telehealth is a great example of that. To move quickly and say, we should scale this up, we should support it, we should support it on par with the in-person encounter. That whole series of decisions was really important, both on the public sector side and what private payers did. That's number one, right? Like it was, there was just a call to action that I think an organization like this needed to respond to. And I think the decreasing of bureaucracy needs to stick with us. Being able to be a good and efficient and facile partner that can pivot on a dime needs to stick with us. A second thing in terms of member support. So I've learned uh, looking back at the experience, 
this organization, like so many others, and I do want to credit the ecosystem for doing this, really stepped up to try to understand what patients, members needed in the moment, right? So this organization literally made hundreds of thousands of phone calls to our members in order to find out if they needed food, if they were safe at home, if they needed medical attention to get them that medical attention because there was so much concern about going into a hospital or, or office. And then turned around not only to assess those risks, but actually to meet them, to meet our members where they needed to be met, right? Did literally tens of thousands of food deliveries into the home, set up the telehealth encounters. That level of engagement with our members, I think, felt probably very different. It felt really right, I know, for the teams that worked on it here. And I don't, that is an ethos and a spirit that I don't want to lose going forward. I mean, we need to be as connected to our members' lives post-pandemic as we, as we did out of a sense of kind of urgency and just doing the right thing in the moment of the pandemic. So I, absolutely, I, I, think, I think the payer landscape is going to change in fundamental ways and stay changed. And I imagine the same is going to hold true on the provider side. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Shantanu, this has been an absolutely terrific interview. Let's wrap up with two questions. The first is along this lines of lessons for leaders, and that is the art of listening. And as I talk to leaders such as yourself, they have pretty specific views about the importance of listening. Could you share whatever thoughts you have about that? Yeah, well, so I got to do a lot of talking here, so I didn't exemplify listening, but, but it, it is absolutely critical. Coming into a new job, I think acknowledging people have been engaged, you know, whether it's meeting my quality team or meeting the foundation team, they've been engaged in that work for years and years. And sitting down with them, I think especially at the beginning, and saying, all right, relay the story to me, the history, your priorities, how you have conducted this work, and just being in a listening mode is really important. I think there is a great emphasis, especially when you come into a leadership role or an executive role, you want to lay out your 30, 60, 90 day plans and show that you are having impact. But I think a lot of what you can do initially is be less focused on the impact you can drive and be more focused on just understanding where the organization is, both its assets, its opportunities, and then using that to kind of craft the, the vision of, of what you might do moving forward, what to change, and frankly, what to preserve because the foundation is strong. Listening, I think, is an absolutely important element of that. You can't get any of that without just taking a step back and hearing what the team has to say. Final question is a bit of a longer term question, and that is, what issue do you think is going to stand out as the issue of this? You've kind of actually intimated how you think about that, but let me ask that question directly. I think it needs to be disparities. Health equity and addressing disparities has been a stated priority for decades, and yet we have not made very much progress on that, I would argue, very much at all. You can see disparities in basically every single quality measure that is reported. We can see disparities in the way care is accessed. We can see disparities in the way we even talk about the kinds of insurance that people have. I think we have to move entirely away from that. We've got to get to a place where we are specifically looking at our most vulnerable populations and making sure that they are getting the appropriate care with the right outcomes. Anyone that's been in quality, that's been in the ecosystem, knows this to be true. And yet now I think the average American knows it to be true with the experiences that we've had in the, in the last now over a year. Even in the way we think about COVID vaccination, 
the way we think about the distribution of COVID itself, I mean, it's become readily apparent. We have a highly unequal system and we either own up to making changes or we acknowledge that this is the system that we want. And I think that would be a terrible outcome if we made that kind of acknowledgement. So that has to be the story of the next decade. I hope it doesn't take that long, but that's got to be the focus. Yeah, it's obviously a long-term issue, but you're right. We need to bear down on it now. Terrific interview, Shantanu. We really appreciate your time. And I'd love to follow up on your suggestion of a conversation around physician leaders and a framework for thinking about that later. Maybe we can do that in person, Shantanu. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. I'd really enjoy that. Thanks so much. Thank you. New episodes will debut every Thursday. Join me in conversations to gain advice and wisdom from CEOs, presidents, and healthcare experts. Healthcare leadership is hard work, but it becomes more manageable as we learn from the remarkable lives and careers of our guests. I'll see you there.